So, um, welcome to the podcast, Steph. May I call you Steph? I didn't actually yes, even check. Yes, please do, Millie. <laughs> um, so Steph has come on, um, and thank you very much for coming on the podcast, because it's for an episode to talk about crisis management. And it feels like 2020 is a year in which everyone is having like a crash course on crisis management all of the time at a global scale. Um, but specifically, Steph does reputation management counsels to inv- um, to clients, advising on how to protect and enhance their reputations, and also how to navigate the- navigate those complex issues when we're in these crisis situations. Um, but obviously, I would want Steph to tell you a bit more about what that actually entails and how she even got into such a an exciting and um, and kind of like volatile market, I guess. So it would be great, Steph, if you could start by giving us um, like five minutes on your background. Thanks so much, Millie, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, so I uh, am an associate director at Edelman, which is a global uh, communications agency. Um, I'm based in the London office and I sit in the corporate reputation team. And so that's um, a big team that encompasses kind of a few different comms disciplines. But I sort of specifically sit across um, issues in crisis as well as the litigation and legal issues teams. So they're sort of specialist comms areas that deal with, you know, as the name suggests, um, issues, crises, um, litigation and legal issues are sort of a subset of that. Um, and I, how did I get into that? I actually, it, it, I actually started my career as a lawyer, um, so quite a different profession altogether. Um, I studied arts law at university in Melbourne in Australia. You can probably tell by my accent that I'm an Aussie. Um, and I really liked my politics and my philosophy units, um, but I didn't really know what the career path was in those fields. Um, and there was a really clear career path into commercial law from doing law as a uni degree. So I thought I'd better try and get a legal job. So I so I did that. I did a lot of internships and seasonal clerkships and I got my first real job at a law firm um, in Melbourne and in Australia. And I did a lot of moving around within the firm and across different teams and I did clients, economists and stuff. But the moving around sort of taught me that I wasn't really passionate about anything I tried and I could sort of see my contemporaries, my colleagues, becoming more passionate about their areas of commercial law. And I sort of thought, oh, there's something wrong with me or I'm just not quite fitting into this. I think that's Um, really normal, by the way. (laughs) If if it's a measure of like how excited the average person gets on commercial law, I think it's, um, you're probably more normal. (laughs) Steph? Exactly. It never feels normal at the time, but it's one of the most normal kind of career growing pains, teething pains, anyone will go through. But yeah, my big, hello. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, yeah, carry on. Oh, hi. Okay. Um, So my big watershed moment came actually when I was on a secondment with a client with the Australian Football League um, and I was working in their legal team doing contracts and things like that. Um, But while I was there, this big scandal actually broke out into the tabloids about these two extramarital affairs allegedly going on in the office involving some senior people. And I just, I got pulled into all these kind of crisis meetings because I was part of the legal team, which sort of sat in those, but it was really all run by the internal comms team. um, And they were sort of helping the AFL senior leadership 
um, handle it and handle the media. And I just had the most intense career envy at that moment in time. I was like, this is so cool. This is so exciting. Um, the people who are managing this are just so like incredible at what they do. And I was just like, I want this, I want this job. I want to manage these high profile, uh, issues for companies. And so within a year I was living in London and working in my first comms job. That is amazing. That is such juicy gossip as well. <laughs> I, I feel like if I was involved in any of those discussions, I would also be like, yes, career change. I want to know people's business. I want to tell them how to yeah. fix their problems. <laughs> and At that's the very least, you kind of get to you get to see and hear all these um, you know, really interesting details about what can happen in the course of running a business, you know, stuff that doesn't necessarily um, make it into the public domain which you know it's it's really it's a privileged position to be in and it's really interesting um you can't talk about most of it because it's usually confidential <laughs> but it's really really interesting to be privy to um that sets us up for a tough line of questioning in this podcast then um but my first <laughs> question is actually pretty easy um so I guess at what stage would you say something becomes a crisis like if you're working with a business or you're working with someone like a person even what you know what takes a situation from being you know not ideal to actually a crisis yeah so i mean in the course of any sort of business there will be you know quite a number of what we call issues which are just you know bumps in the road that arise that just need to be dealt with um and an issue is something um that in and of itself is not a massive threat to the reputation of the brand, um, but, you know, it's something that if left unchecked could snowball into that. But, you know, issues are sort of that lower level problem. Where you get to a sort of crisis point is where the issue um, becomes so big that it is a um, either a threat to the reputation of the business, so a threat to the brand, um, a threat to key stakeholder relationships, um, or a threat to the brands, to the business's license to operate. Um, and so as a crisis comms professional, um, it's your job to protect those three things. Um, and when we talk about the term license to operate, that gets thrown around a lot. And when I started in this business, I didn't really understand what it meant. But it's essentially talking about your permission to carry out a trade or undertake a business activity. So that can be a formal requirement, like it can be, you know, a practicing certificate for lawyers or some kind of permit that you get from an authority. Um, and that's especially the case in regulated industries like banking or financial services um, or professional services and so on. Um, but at the same time, we can also be talking about more of a sort of social license to operate. Mm -hmm. So um, sort of the grant of um the approval from the community that an industry has to operate or that a business has to operate. Um, and so it's sort of recognition and acceptance in its um, social surroundings. Um, so those, that is really um, the integral thing that we are protecting um, in terms of crisis comms. And I guess um, if you were just to give an example, this might be putting you on the spot, what would you say is an example of a company dealing with an issue versus like a company dealing in the company that's currently in a crisis or has been in a crisis? Or is silence a suggestion that you can't actually reveal? 
So the difference between an issue and a crisis, it's a common question that comes up. Um, issue management is sort of a normal executive activity and it's done um, according to a sort of schedule in office hours while business continues. Um, so it's sort of a, a risk that is expected that sort of materialises in the course of business. A crisis, by definition, is outside of normal experience and it causes um, the leaders of the business to drop all other priorities and um, it, severely, it can severely disrupt continuity of the organisation's core business and it can actually be a threat to the continuation of the organisation's business altogether. So in terms of an example, um, so take, for instance, a, uh, you know, a logistics company and an issue that might come up for them from time to time is that, you know, one of the drivers may have, uh, you know, an accident or may have, um, you know, a driving offence, you know, a, um, yeah. driving um, under the influence of alcohol or something, you know. So it's not good. It's something that they have to deal with. It might get picked up in the media sort of locally where it happens. Um, you know, if it's happened a few times in a row, you know, that might be something that gets picked up in the media. It might be something that some of their um, stakeholders question them about and say, you know, look, are you doing, um, you know, the proper checks and so on to make sure that this isn't happening, that your drivers um, have observed all the policies and so on that they're meant to follow and the laws that they're meant to follow. Um, but that is something that the company uh, will deal with um, and it doesn't call into question their licence to operate versus, um, for example, you know, if there were to be, you know, a, a logistics companies, you know, a plane falls out of the sky, you know, if this is a horrible example, but, you know, killing people and, you know, causing a lot of damage and, um, you know, just something that will call into question, um, you know, the safety measures that are observed and, you know, the potentially calls into question the entire business's licence to operate if they're, um, you know, if there's found to be some kind of, um, neglect for maintenance and, and safety, uh, you know, that comes from the top down of the organisation. Um, or, you know, the fact that safety issues have been reported but not properly communicated throughout the company and, you know, the, um, you know, the company's senior leadership uh, have shown that they are turning a blind eye to issues like this in favour of sort of profit-seeking activities, something like that. So if that were to come to light and be reported in the media, you know, that is a crisis um, that, you know, would need to be handled with the appropriate level of urgency. Um, that all makes sense. I guess without revealing any past clients, um, what's a really good example of like a crisis where you'd been, you'd seen it and you're just like, ah, if I was only if I was in that business to help them solve it. Yeah. Or you think like, what's an example um, of someone doing it really well and someone doing it really badly? Yeah, look, I mean, there are so many different types of crisis situations. One of the hallmarks of this line of work is that you're dealing in the unusual or the unexpected. Um, but then also, on the other hand, depending on the type of business that you're in, some risks sort of find you more readily than others do. And so, um, you know, obviously getting to know your exposures is really important. One of the exposures that is present for almost all businesses these days is um, cybercrime. So data breaches, ransomware attacks, these things are a reality for any business that has a digital presence and that 
collects um, data, which is almost everybody. Um, and so, I mean, there are some really um, prominent groups that carry out ransomware attacks. Um, they're sort of known in the media and they are quite um, happy to almost, um, they, they publicise their successful attacks um, to sort of gain notoriety for themselves. And so it's it's really, really damaging when a business gets hit by one of these attacks because it means that their um, data has been compromised, that their, you know, their customers' data has potentially been compromised. Um, and that can be really, really damaging because it can reveal that they don't either don't have um, sufficient protections in place in terms of sort of, um, you know, the software that they use to fend off those attacks or that they have, um, you know, it can reveal that they have not properly handled a, you know, relatively minor um, data breach, which they thought to be minor at the time, which was actually a lot worse, but um, because they didn't handle it properly, um, you know, they exposed their customers or um, their employees to damage. So that's one that we do see um, relatively frequently these days. But in terms of what's, you know, advice for um, advice for companies that find themselves in position, I mean, there's often a lot of controversy around the apology, you know, whether or not to apologise, particularly mm. when there's legal uh, implications, um, you know, when the lawyers are involved, sometimes business leaders are told, you know, look, they, they tell us, yeah, you know, we, we're open to issuing an apology, but... Um, the lawyers have indicated that they don't want us to make a public apology because that would be, you know, admitting liability. So yeah. there is often that tension there. Um, I think and, you know, the jury's still out. Yeah, I think that angle is super interesting because it's kind of like um, when, and I suppose maybe you're the type of person that would advise a company on this, when do you say sorry? Because if you say it too early, you're right, you could... It, it you almost want to assess the situation and public reaction as to whether there's a, a, a need for an apology. But often by the time you've determined that, it's too late mm. because you'll then seem to be just really reactive to yeah. people rather than like actually meaning, actually you've recognised you've made a mistake and you're apologising sincerely. So that must be a really yeah. hard thing to get right. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. Um, it's It is difficult, but I mean... It, it always depends on the circumstances, which is, you know, a frustrating answer, but it does. But, you know, in general, my view is that when your company makes a mistake, the best thing you can do is to apologise quickly and, you know, as unreservedly as you can and make it appear human. Um, and so the most effective way to do that is to assign a spokesperson to speak on the company's behalf, you know, somebody... Um, you know, either the CEO, the head of the company, or, you know, if not the CEO, then somebody who is appropriately senior to be talking about the issue. Because um, it's a lot easier to relate to that person than sort of a group of lawyers or somebody speaking on the company's behalf who isn't um, in senior leadership. And, you know, it's it's always important to choose a good communicator for that job because, I mean, the way they speak and their actions will influence how your stakeholders react to the situation. Um, and a really good example of that in real life is actually, um, you might recall it was in 2018, there was an incident in one of the Starbucks stores 
in Philadelphia, um, there, there was a video that came out about two black men being arrested by the police um, for, yeah, for sort of doing absolutely nothing in the story. Do you, do you recall yeah. that one coming out? And I, I remember they were just sitting there having co- They had like bought a coffee and then were staying there and working like so many people do in Starbucks. And then someone called them, uh, called, like called the police on them saying that they were just yeah. like loitering around. Is that, am I recalling the facts right? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's the same one. And um, I mean, it prompted a lot of outrage um, at, online um, pretty immediately afterwards. And their CEO um, at the time, Kevin Johnson, um, he gave what I think was a really excellent um, handling of the situation. He provided a personal apology, um, a personal written apology, and then he went on the news and delivered an apology um, personally that way as well. And I think it was on CNN News that, you know, in the course of delivering his apology, he was um, very, very genuinely brought to tears um, by the situation and he apologised just unreservedly, took complete responsibility um, for what had happened didn't seek to sort of, um, you know, justify or explain away anything. And he essentially said the words, I will fix this. Um, And it's always just really stuck with me. When I watched that video, I just thought, um, you know, it's a terrible thing that's happened, but that's, um, you know, he's put, it's made a very, uh, he's given a very human face um, and a human angle to that apology, which I think, um, you know, was made it better received and some others that we've seen. Yeah. Second bit I have a question for is all of the ways we've been talking about crisis now kind of sound like, okay, this is what you would do or this is how it comes about if it's a fault of your own. I'm wondering, do you also give advice to clients on when a crisis happens because of external factors and it puts your business in a crisis and maybe even threatens your license to operate, but it it's not necessarily something you can take blame for? So I guess like the most relevant thing here is like the COVID situation. What do businesses do when their whole business is threatened or their industry is threatened um, by an external factor that plunges them into crisis? Yeah, I mean, it's like no one could have seen COVID-19 coming. Um, Even, you know, even insurance policies that provide business interruption cover, um, you know, a lot of those, most of those were not drafted to cover um, pandemics. And, you know, we're seeing that play out in the courts at the moment in the UK. So just, you know, this is very much something that came down on the business world as a, you know, as a completely unexpected thing. But in terms of how to manage that, um, well, of course, you know, it's really important um, that business leaders ensure that the safety of their employees um, and their customers and sort of everybody that their business um, impacts is is paramount. Um, and so in absolutely, you know, in, in any first response or in any response to something like that, um, you know, that has to be front of mind and any kind of um, action by you know, a business leader that sort of shows that that's not the case um, is is pretty swiftly seen to be um, not the right thing. And in light of the fact that there has been just, you know, so much um, 
you know, so much sacrifice and so much suffering on the part of of the British public but and the public everywhere in the world um, at the hands of this awful pandemic. Um, the public is very, I would say the public is very um, swift to make judgments against businesses that have sort of not shown themselves to be behaving in good faith during the crisis. So whether that's anything like, you know, profiteering behaviour or, um, you know, not prioritising their employees' um, health and well-being, um, or, you know, not, um, not seen to be behaving in good faith when it comes to, um, performing their obligations under contracts with business partners or similar. Um, anything like that, uh, is certainly, um, thrown into a very, cast into a very, very negative light. Yeah, I think um, a super interesting example of someone that's managed it really well handling this like external crisis situation is Brian Chesky, the Airbnb CEO, because he had to re- um, let go of like a quarter of Airbnb's employees. But somehow he's come mm-hmm. across as like a hero because he wrote this really mm-hmm. like transparent document about why they were doing it, what what they were aligning their redundancies to in terms of um, the core parts of their business that they wanted to get back to. And then he set up this site, um, which was all of the people that had been let go and how they could kind of uh, how other employers could find the best talent that was now available from Airbnb. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that, um, you know, gets remembered in the aftermath of a crisis like this, you know, everyone's a bit, everyone's a bit bruised. A lot of people have had some really, you know, suffered some terrible financial or personal um, consequences. People have lost jobs. Um, and, you know, in the face of that, when, you know, if you, if you have an employer that's unfortunately had to let you go or furlough you, um, you know, anything, like that, that, you know, makes, makes the process, um, that little bit easier and just makes it clear that, you know, the, there is some care shown, um, is, is certainly very, very much appreciated, but also I think will be remembered, um, in times to come. Totally agree. Um, I think, yeah, when we have these global crisis situations, they always say it kind of shows the people's true colors in terms of how businesses Mm. operate in this way. Um, I was going to say, could you possibly end on tips for other 20-year-olds um, handling crisis situations, both in terms of something... Give it my best shot. I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that very few people among us have the talent of being able to think perfectly clearly in a crisis, whether it's a personal thing or if it's work-related. Um, so in a crisis, everything typically unfolds very quickly and you get pulled in a lot of different directions all at once. Uh, and so all that means that you're typically very rushed and you are likely to make um, hasty decisions based on sort of imperfect or incomplete information or knowledge that you might regret later. So um, my point there would be that in a crisis, preparation is absolutely key uh, so preparing for <clears throat> the event that certain risks 
will materialize and you know what you would do or say in the event that those things materialize but as we know um you know life is obviously really unpredictable and sometimes you find yourself dealing with something that is truly unexpected and that just comes out of left field so when preparation isn't possible the next best thing to do is i would just say not to rush and to just stop and consider your options and your objectives before giving any kind of response. Um, so if people are demanding answers from you, um, you can provide a holding statement, which is, you know, saying that, you know, you're looking into whatever the issue is and you'll revert as soon as you've gotten across the facts and you've had the chance to collect your thoughts um, and I mean, that is perfectly fine. It, whether or not that's like a personal or a work situation, saying something like that is perfectly understandable. Um, the worst thing you can do is to provide a really hasty response that's completely off the mark because that then limits what you can say and do later on. Um, so yeah, providing a considered and well thought out response is really, really key. And just finally on that, I think just it's worth noting that to prepare for any kind of issue or crisis or to deal with it when it's already happening, it's really important to just always have a clear sight of what your objectives are. So how do you want to emerge from this situation? What are your biggest concerns? What are your greatest imperatives? And sort of what does success look like at the end of the day? If you keep your eyes on that and sort of make sure that everything you do is is laddering up to those goals then, um, you know, that, that puts you in a very good position. I think that's such great advice. And I think that not only when you're, I, I love the idea of like a, a holding statement, both like from a business perspective, but also <laughs> I think I really should utilize that in real life all the time. It's like, I, I one of my <laughs> biggest issues is that I form opinions super quickly. So I think the idea is, you know, um, let me just give a holding statement whilst I collect my thoughts and all the relevant facts is like a very, very useful piece of context. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for coming on the podcast and sharing all your advice around how to handle crises. I'm very jealous of your job because that sounds ridiculously interesting. And it's like, you know, rifling through people's dirty laundry all the time. So, <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for it's coming a good on. Fun. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having me, Millie. Oh, see you later. Bye.